again. Welcome to another discount. Bumper Summer. Here I am, surrounded by construction site next to my little cottage. So I hope we don't have any really bad noise. And just in the wake of July 4th weekend, which America celebrated with a mass shooting, which is just the way America is. And today we have a guest who's written a really wonderful and readable and stimulating book about the history of American conservatism over the last 100 years by Matthew Continetti. And he's a journalist who worked at the Weekly Standard and co-founded the Washington Free Beacon, where he served as editor-in-chief. And currently, he's a contributing editor at National Review, a columnist at Commentary, and a senior fellow and the Patrick and Charlene Neal Chair in American Prosperity at the American Enterprise Institute. And his new book is The Right, The Hundred-Year War for American Conservatism. Just before I start, I want to just ask you, if you enjoy these podcasts, we don't put any ads in them. We don't charge for them. We give them out for free. We try and make this the cleanest, clearest means of communication we can. But that means we also need you to support us occasionally. So if you would think about, and if you haven't subscribed, please think about it. It's coming up to our two-year anniversary, and we'd love for you to finally join the party fully. So please do. Meanwhile, Matthew, thanks so much for coming on the Dishcast. Thank you for having me, Andrew. Tell me where you come from. Where were you born? How did you grow up? I was born in Alexandria, Virginia. I grew up in Fairfax County, Virginia, right outside Washington, D.C. Went to a public high school in Fairfax County, Lake Braddock Secondary School. And then I went to Columbia University, where I graduated in 2003. Wow. What did your parents do? My father sold cars as part of the new or old the family business yes and then no, thanks new to the or old oh oh both but okay. primarily new new cars okay yes. I, I thought you were just calling me old which i am no no, um, no i'm just thinking of the used <laughs> car salesman as a, as a general experience. no there was a used uh, lot it was a family business my great-grandfather immigrated from italy in the early part of the 20th century, basically built up the resources to launch a Buick Motors dealership in Old Town, Alexandria, right across the street from the Masonic Temple there. So it was mm. called Temple Motor Company. It lasted there for about 70 years. My father worked there, eventually became the sales manager there, then went to another dealership. But because of the Great Recession in 2008, the car business dramatically shrank, and he went from selling cars to buying them for the federal government for the last decade of his career. And my mother was a school teacher. Were you, uh, how would you describe your upbringing? I ask this about every guest because I think it just helps get a little insight. Were you born up a Catholic? I was. We attended mass, I would say intermittently, certainly for the holidays. I did go to CCD. I was confirmed. Uh, CCD I, for our yes. non-Catholic listeners is? Catholic education. Yeah. So Sunday school for Catholic. Sunday school. That's what they call it. Yes. And I was confirmed. But then I drifted from the church. So you, you regard yourself today as an agnostic or a secular person? Well, I am actually a Jew by choice. Oh. I converted to Judaism in 2011. Wow. So I'm, a Jew. I'm, I'm a Jew. I'm a proud one. How did that happen? Tell me about that. It's a combination of things. One was I've always felt drawn to Judaism, even when I was a Catholic. Two of my very close friends growing up were Jewish. Several of my friends in high school were Jewish. I felt closer culturally 
to Judaism for whatever reason. <clears throat> and then uh, when it became clear to me that I would be marrying a, a Jewish girl and wanting to raise our children in that faith tradition, I went the next step. Well, good for you. So you've written this book about the right and you've, you've been really involved with what one might call the neoconservative right for quite a while. And one thing that struck me, first of all, in the book is, is the early part of the book, where you're describing a conservatism, roughly speaking, it's not a conservatism that most Europeans would recognize, that is strikingly similar in some ways to where the current Republican Party is, as if it's gone almost full circle in a way on some themes. Explain, mm -hmm. what, explain what you mean by that exactly. What were the policies and ideas percolating in the 20s? that the 1920s that seemed to be re-emerging in the 2020s. For sure. I, I think the way to approach this is from the starting point that I grew up thinking that Ronald Reagan was kind of the, you know, the standard of American conservatism. And while I was conducting my research for this book and began studying conservatism pre-Reagan and while covering conservatism post-Reagan, I realized, in fact, that Reagan may be something of an aberration in the history of the American right. And so when I turned to the politics of the 1920s and the politics of the Republican Party in the 1920s, the presidencies of Warren Harding and Calvin Coolidge, partly Hoover, Herbert Hoover while, while he was president, certainly Herbert Hoover's post-presidency, I realized that in some ways the GOP then resembles the GOP now. And I focus on three issues. The first is immigration. So the major restrictionist acts that essentially ended immigration to the United States for 40 years were passed under these Republican presidents in the 1920s. And we see today on the Republican right an antipathy to illegal immigration for sure, and in many quarters, an antipathy to legal immigration as well. The second issue is economic protection. The Republican Party in the 1920s was, stood for the tariff. It stood for insulating America from the global economy. Now, we had Tariff Man as president for four years, but I think the way that most Republicans think of this issue today is through the lens of China. And so you'll see a support for the tariffs against China. You'll also see support for some type of economic competition with or industrial policy to counteract Chinese advantages. And then finally, there's the issue of war. So the Republican presidencies of the 1920s really defined themselves against the crusading Wilsonianism of Woodrow Wilson. And that was Warren Harding's promise of normalcy. And of course, the Republican Party had led the opposition to the League of Nations as well in the aftermath of the Great War, World War I. Today's Republican Party, while it's in the midst of a civil war over these issues, is increasingly isolationist or non-interventionist or backing the policies of restraint, however you like to describe it very leery of foreign entanglement, always wanting to preserve America's freedom of maneuver, but also much now more distrustful of international institutions and not entirely interested in democracy promotion. So when it looked at against that backdrop, that, that conservatism in which I grew up and the, the movement which I joined seems more, much more the exception rather than the rule for the American right. Let's take this concept of conservatism, because I mean, I've been thinking about it, obviously, most of my life. But one of the things that interests me is obviously a conservative understands that the politics is situational. In other words, you wouldn't expect the politics of a country, a unique country like the United States to 
be equivalent to the politics of the United Kingdom or Germany or, or, or Russia or in, it's, it's, it's of its kind. You have this big, big, giant continent full of resources. You really have two vast oceans around you. You have a lot to do at home. You have a lot of money to make, a lot of businesses to build. You have a new world and a new life here. Isn't the old Republican position of don't screw it up, let let the government stay a little bit of, away from that and also let us stay out of foreign wars and let us, if we can possibly do it, protect our own industries and keep old school moral standards. And this is this strikes me as sort of easily sort of the most temperamentally conservative response to the American experience. And so in some ways, if the Republican Party is and this is a big question, if it is representative of conservatism, hasn't it, hasn't it actually come back to conservatism and away from these, 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 these Reaganite nostrums of permanent global warfare and complete free trade and close to open borders? I'm caricaturing that position, but, that, but those are the kind of extremes. Isn't it actually back to its roots now as opposed to the diversion it took in the late 20th century? I think there's a case for that. I look at the American political tradition through the framework that Walter Russell Mead sets out in his book, Special Providence, where he talks about the four kind of dimensions of the American foreign policy, American politics, the Jeffersonian, the Hamiltonian, the Jacksonian, and the Wilsonian, right? And there are conservative elements to at least three of the four schools, right? And so there are also liberal elements to each of the, to all four. So one of the difficulties of the American political tradition is that it's this mixed, this strange mixture of li liberalism and conservatism. In fact, I think even just earlier you said for, for Europeans, when they think conservative or liberal, it means something very different than it does to Americans. So it's hard to disentangle all these things. I would look at it in a sense that conservatives try to be realistic about the world around them. And I do think that, um, after World War, as I dis discuss in the book, the situation had changed. To be a realist about the world around you meant something different than it had prior to Pearl Harbor or even prior to the Great Depression, right? And so to take a realistic appraisal of the, of the Cold War world then meant for many people who identified as conservatives, a changing of foreign policy, right? A, a shift from a policy of disengagement with the world now to a policy of engagement with the ultimate end of containing or from the, the rights perspective, rolling back the Soviet Union. And so that also entailed, I think, a shift in economic policy. Because when you look at protection, for example, a lot of the arguments for open trade during the Cold War were arguments from a geostrategic perspective. We need to have trade with our allies because their economies were devastated by the war. And we need to help build them up by opening our markets to them so that they will prosper and hence be insulated from infiltration by communism or just being in a weak state, a weak state where external communists could take over. So I think, I think there's a sense in which calibration is very important to a conservative, calibrating your policies to the reality you find around you. And if there was a fault, say, with the conservative movement post-Reagan, it was, I think, a, a reluctance to recalibrate given the new circumstances. And, also, uh, and this continues on the right today, 
also a reluctance to recognize the reality of the nation you're defending. I often think it's funny that so many on the right consider themselves nationalists, and yet they exhibit contempt for at least half of their nation. You know, so this is that's how I would approach the, this important question you ask. It's it's how are we realistic? realistically attuning ourselves and our policies toward the realities in which we find ourselves. Well, let's, let's, let's play a couple of thought experiments with that. That essentially Republicans were against intervention in the Second World War, by and large, until they didn't have a choice, which is that Japan attacked. And that's when Lindbergh basically ended, America First ended. That entire brigade were, it, it weren't defeated in argument as opposed to defeated in reality, that, that America had, was, had war declared upon it by both Nazi Germany. But once we had vanquished Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan, why it was a choice, was it not, that the United States would then stay forwardly in Europe to protect the newly liberated democracies of Western Europe. America need not have done that. America could have said, well, we're done now. You Europeans messed us up another once again, but uh, we'll provide minimal support. But, you know, and, and communism, if again, this is a conservative insight, communism is doomed to fail by any conservative idea of reality. So why not withdraw and wait for the other totalitarian system to collapse? In other words, and even, and if it overreached, let's say it invaded Vietnam or, 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 then since you know it's economically bankrupt, since you know it's empirically based on untruth, it's just a matter of time before it collapses. So could there not have been a conservatism after the Second World War that simply said, no, the fight against communism is not, is an ideological battle. It's not a conservative battle. It's not actually impinging upon the interests of the United States. We could flood Europe with our goods. We don't even need Europe for our goods. We are, we are an incredibly powerful economy on our own. How would you respond to a critique like that? Well, there was a conservatism that said that, and that's the conservatism of Senator Robert Taft, who, who plays a, a, a big role in my book. And in fact, writing and researching the book was an education for me, and especially in learning about Robert Taft and in coming in some ways to admire him. Tell, tell us more about Taft. While because, disagreeing with this foreign policy. Yeah, sure. but let, tell we, us more because people don't know this figure very well. And yet yeah. it seems to me to be as important to American conservatism, at least some of it's a part of it, as someone like Disraeli or someone like Peel or someone like Salisbury in the United Kingdom with the conservatives. So give us a little, little background about Taft. He, he, so he was the son of, our, of the president and Supreme Court Justice William Howard Taft. He was a senator elected in 1938. Robert Taft really was the carrier of the traditions of Harding and Coolidge and of the post-presidency Hoover, who was much more individualistic in his economic policy. So Robert Taft believed in a decentralization of power. He was a congressional supremacist. He didn't want power to be concentrated in the executive branch. And he was a non-interventionist. He did not think America should be involved in the politics of uh, other nations, especially the great power politics of Europe. He had worked for Hoover during Reconstruction and Relief after the Great War. And he was horrified at what he had seen in Europe as a, as a result of that war. And he wanted to avoid something like that 
at all costs. So he's elected to the Senate in 1938. Immediately upon becoming a senator in, in 1939, he's essentially the leader of the opposition because of his patrimony, but also because of his reputation for being a very principled spokesman for opposition to the New Deal. And this is where the word conservative in American politics really comes to the fore in the 20th century, which is to describe the opponents of the New Deal. And to be an opponent of the New Deal and of FDR wasn't just to be an opponent of FDR's domestic policies, of the economic intervention, of the centralization of power in D.C. It was also to be an opponent of FDR's foreign policies, which were, of course, very internationalist, and then beginning in September 1939, opposing Hitler's attempted conquest of Europe, right? So Taft is a leader of the opposition. He doesn't want us to get involved in war. As you said, that's basically obviated by Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor in December 1941, and then Hitler's declaration of war on us following that. But after World War II, Taft remains very skeptical that America should be engaged in the world. He is an advocate for the worldview that I describe as disengaged nationalism. So he's nationalistic. He loves America. He wants America to be strong. But he thinks America's, American strength is the strength of example. But he, and so he's, he's an opponent, say, of the NATO treaty. He if it's still very much a live debate because he doesn't think that America should come to other nations' defense if it's not necessarily a direct interest of the United States. Yeah, he loses the internal battle for the Republican Party. He loses it to internationalists represented by Arthur Vandenberg, another senator, and he who is an advocate of containment, which was the the policy of Harry Truman and the and the Cold War liberals. Why does Taft lose his argument? You know, it's interesting. One was, in fact, many people were not as sure that the Soviet Union would collapse. In fact, at that time, our knowledge of the economics of the Soviet Union suggested that actually it was on the upswing and there were many advocates for the Soviet system. So even though you had some free market economists like Ludwig von Mises saying socialism would never work, that wasn't really the mainstream of thought. In fact, the Soviet Union appeared to be a colossus and it was a colossus that was expanding in the aftermath of the Second World War. So when you look at a figure, say, like Whitaker Chambers, the ex-communist who becomes very important to the foundation of the American conservative movement, he thinks he's joining the losing side when he leaves communism, right? So there's a deep pessimism there. And that meant a deep fear of what the Soviet Union under Joseph Stalin, right, who's still running it at this point, represented. Another reason Taft lost was he could never attain his main goal, which was become the Republican nominee for president. He tried several times, and he always lost out to figures who were aligned with the Eastern establishment of the Republican Party, the more business-oriented, kind of go-with-the-flow parts of the Republican Party. So he couldn't really put his imprint on the party as a whole, which I think presidential nominees do. Finally, Taft dies pretty early in life. He dies in 1953, short, not long after actually becoming Senate Majority Leader. How old was the, he then? He would have been in his 50s, I okay. believe. But, I think um, we don't have to nail that down. I just wanted yeah. to get a, a rough... Yeah. And how was he politically? Was he gifted as a speaker? Was he... Well, yes. This is this is, ties into why he never became the nominee. Uh, 
He was not a very charismatic person. In fact, he would admit to anybody that he did not have much of a personality. He liked debate. He 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 engaged in debate. He he wrote a short book called uh, On His Foreign Policy, Foreign Policy for Americans, when he was thinking of getting into the 52 race, which he lost to Dwight Eisenhower. But he was not a charismatic figure. However, at that time, post-World War II, early 1950s, he was the leader of American conservatives. And so there were stirrings, in, including, according to accounts at the time, among even young people, some groups of young people that looked to Robert Taft as a principled leader, but not one who was able to command a great crowd or to capture the nomination of the Republican Party. Where do you put Eisenhower in this context? Because there are many views of Eisenhower, but to me, he, he does seem, if I were really to ask myself, who is the most quintessentially conservative, as I understand it, president of the 20th century, I actually think Eisenhower would have a pretty good claim to that. He he was restrained. He was he was he was he was racially quite progressive, but extremely minimalist in what he was about prepared to do about it. He 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 managed to get us out, or just find a way to resolve the Korean War. He was worried about the military-industrial complex, and he also, at the same time, basically accepted the rough contours of the New Deal and the role of the state. And then did things quite, I don't think they're particularly ideological, but were about national development, the federal highway development, and so on and so forth. Where do you, where do you put Eisenhower as a figure in understanding the right of the last hundred years? For sure. Just a quick note. It was, Taft was in his early 60s oh, okay. when he died. So this question about Eisenhower and his place in this story is very important because it gets to the difference between a dispositional conservative someone who is conservative in temperament, someone who believes in conservatism as go slow, you know, take your time, be prudent, right? And a movement conservative. And movement conservatism, the focus of my story, really attains self-consciousness in the 1950s. And perhaps paradoxically, it does so by opposing Eisenhower, this dispositional conservative. So when you mention that Eisenhower accepted the New Deal. This was the root of the conservative disagreement with him. So conservatism in America is a response to FDR. Harding, Coolidge, Hoover, the, the figures from the 20s, they didn't even consider themselves conservatives. They would have said they were constitutionalists or individualists or Americanists, not conservative because they just assumed that they stood for the status quo. It's in 1932 with FDR's election and then the revolution in the nature of the federal government that FDR inaugurates with the New Deal that the right begins to think of itself in America as conservative. What, what are they conserving? Well, they're trying to conserve what's left of the pre-Roosevelt dispensation and where you can't simply conserve what's left. You might have to take proactive action to get back to that. Right. So this is why in early in his life, William F. Buckley Jr. would cons con call himself a counter-revolutionary because he wants to return to the pre-FDR state of things. This is why you can't like Ike and be a movement conservative in the 1950s because Ike basically says the New Deal's done. No one's going to repeal it, right? 
he's accepting that po that political reality w that we were talking on about earlier. But for a movement conservative, it's that's not enough. There's still this thought that you know we the conservatives could turn back the clock to before 1932. The equivalent, the other, just to interject for a second, is Churchill in Britain. It comes back to power in 1950 after a socialist revolution in Britain that was more far going and deep reaching than anything that happened in America and doesn't do much about it. Mm -hmm. He, this is the man that tried to break the minor strike of 26. You know, he's, this is a guy with a history of economic liberalism in that sense, who just says it's, it's done. People kind of like it. People like the National Health Service. People like the support of the government when they're in desperate positions. In Britain, it became really quite popular. But again, also in Britain, just to add a little sort of a drop shadow to this, you do have the beginnings, but much less in America, but the beginnings of a sense that maybe conservatism has to be counter-revolutionary. Maybe it has to be, well, another word for counter-revolutionary is reactionary. Is that a word that you would consider in thinking about the, the revolt against a kind of quietist, moderate, prudent, managerial conservatism of an Eisenhower or of a Churchill or indeed of a Macmillan? It's a word that, they, that the conservatives themselves did not use so much. They would, they would say counter-revolutionary. They would say radical. They, would, they were actually open so how can a conservative be a radical, Matthew? <laughs> I'm just I'm just getting at the I'm getting at the sort of what are the underlying because you're living in a society that is moving, it seems, both at the direction of liberal elites and to some extent at the extent of middle American opinion. And you're losing. You've you've lost for a couple of, you know, two or three decades. And and you want to kind of radically get them back. That creates this paradox within conservatism. And in fact, it's a it's radical in attempting to restore a status quo ante. And this also explains, by the way, that the cons these conservatives, these counter-revolutionary conservatives or radical conservatives were on the fringes mm -hmm. of American life, right? They I were. mean, when they, thought this, when they thought this way. Now, their positions attracted adherence, which eventually would grow into a movement. But there's no question that the success of that movement was also accompanied by the moderation of their views, right? So... If you think about William F. Buckley Jr., the founder of the post-war American conservative movement, in my view, as I say, in the 1950s, he's against Eisenhower's policies. He refuses to endorse in 1956 or 1960. He is critical both of the economic policies of the Eisenhower administration as well as the foreign policies of the Eisenhower administration because Eisenhower, again, did not go and uh, assume a policy of rollback of communism, he also maintained the policies of containment that he inherited from the democratic administrations as well. So Buckley's very critical of all of this. By the time he reaches the end of his life, Buckley that is, in the 1990s, he's, he's not as energized about a full-on assault against the New Deal, right? He, 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 he is, he, there's some portions of his writing toward the end of his life where he's basically acknowledges that the New Deal is here to stay. He's kind of reached that conservative acceptance, the small c conservative acceptance. But when we look at this history of this movement, all of these paradoxes are tied up, or rather they're all present at the time of the 1950s. And in fact, the critics of the post-war conservative movement were making exactly the arguments that you're making, Andrew. They were saying, what do you mean? 
how can you be a conservative and yet support the neoliberal economics of this in, in Hayek, right? Or what do you mean? Why are you a conservative and yet you're opposing Dwight Eisenhower, who's talking about you know, one nation under God and in God we trust, and we're having this baby boom. The For the conservative movement activists, they just didn't see it that way because their eyes were on the goal of defeating communism abroad and the welfare state at home. But they were wrong, weren't they? <laughs> when you think about it, that if conservatives today could, if America today was like the America of the Eisenhower years, Republicans would think they'd achieved a complete counter-revolution in, in morals, in, in virtue, in enterprise, in faith and institution. That, in retrospect, seems like a pretty golden era in America. And it was conservatives who hated it. <laughs> At least these particular conservatives who really didn't like it. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, looking at the social dynamics, sure, as, of course, there's great costs associated with that society in the 1950s, which is a whole other dimension of the, of the, the post-war right. But they weren't, they, those conservatives weren't concerned about those costs. Yeah, and they, they weren't concerned about those costs. And they, and they also just assumed the existence of the more, you know, stable social structures at that time. Right. Their primary concern was in foreign policy and in economic policy. And, and actually, if you told a conservative, and I'll just stand in for one here, well, we're going to go back to the 1950s, where the Soviet Union is the dominant force on the global stage. And the government, it, there's just an assumption that the government should have a huge role in American life and the economy should be structured in ways it's all kind of tripartite negotiations between big business, big government, big labor. Conservative might say, I don't like that part. Right. And I, I, I would agree with that. <laughs> so they weren't, I, 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 they weren't entirely wrong, in my view. I think they had some insights both to the nature of communism and the threat of communism, as well as the kind of the, the heavy, high-handed structures of bureaucracy that were being overlaid atop the American economy that were real. And I would say, too, you know, th there was the conservative response to that situation in the 50s, but there was also the beginning of the left response to it as well. I don't really talk about it as much in my book, but the 1950s was the decade of the beat poets, right? There is, so, that, so both sides of the political spectrum on kind of the margins were saying that this Eisenhower dispensation, this small C conservatism was in fact stultifying, whether it's of the economy or it's of a human flourishing. Yeah, no, I, 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 I take that view too. It, 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 it's, I can see that too, which brings us to the idea that conservatism is often a reaction to swift change or to a big upheaval. It has that sort of temperamental instinct of, hold on a minute. It has an instinct of saying, you propose these extraordinarily elaborate theories that somehow you figured out the economy for good and all, and it's this managerial Keynesian situation, you think, and maybe you're wrong. And then, of course, you have the social changes emerging in the 60s. And the now, when you talk to liberals like people, or if you, you listen to people like Rick Perlstein and people who've written the history of the Republican Party, what they will say is that the Republicans ended their torpor, and I'm not agreeing with this, just to be clear. I'm, I'm trying to present the, some important arguments against, against some of this stuff. Is that it, it, it was really a reaction to, to race, that the, that the integration of the Eisenhower years and then the breakthrough of the Civil Rights Act created an obvious 
threat to very basic conservative understanding of the world. And that then it became a reactionary movement against both Soviet communism and domestic, what you might call libertinism or liberation movements, whether they be the African-Americans and then increasingly the women's movement and then ultimately the, the gay rights movement. My question here is, is, is did that fundamentally alter the character of conservatism, the new aspirations of the left? Well, in a way, it, those new aspirations were what made the post-war conservative movement figures to think of themselves as part of the establishment. So one way of telling this story, not really Perlstein's way, more my way, which is that the social movements of the 1960s kind of existed, existed on a spectrum from equality under the law to radical reinterpretations of the law. And there were also, all these social movements were bubbling up alongside the anti-war movement, the, the movement against Vietnam, which also was a spectrum of views going from Vietnam is not in our interest, we need to withdraw, to total withdrawal now, to in fact, America is an aggressive imperialist power and it's America is the problem, not communism. As the, the more radical views on that spectrum in both society and in foreign policy began to predominate and to take up more and more of the conversational space in American politics, you had a fracturing of America's liberal establishment as represented in the Democratic Party. And of course, all the events surrounding the, in the horrible year of 1968 uh, encapsulate this. And it's ironically that that made figures like Buckley say, well, you know, hold it. There is an American center. We can't, you know, we can't just abandon it from the right as well. And I, I talk about in the book how the anti-war movement in particular also was affecting the American right because there are many young libertarians and not so young libertarians who were very much against the war and who, in fact, some of them became adopted what I was putting as the most extreme of those views that America's the problem, right, to begin with, right? There's something corrupt about America that's exemplified in our intervention in Vietnam that needs to be uprooted. And it almost split the right apart. In fact, it's one of the main reasons why the Libertarian Party formed in the 1970s was this kind of exodus of libertarians from the Republican Party and from the conservative movement over the issue of Vietnam. But that, that, made, that made Buckley and the conservatives say, well, well no, we're, we're defending some type of American center. In fact, we're, we're, we're rethinking our views of containment, which we used to say was didn't go far enough. Well, now we're thinking, well, actually, let's just defend that. And it also just quickly, it forced the conservatives gathered around a magazine such as National Review to begin allying with the dissident liberal intellectuals, the people who were beginning to be called neoconservative around magazines such as the Public Interest and Commentary Magazine. Because those neoconservatives, the Public Interest and the Commentary Magazine, they were on the left. They, they identified as liberals. They had supported all the civil rights bills in the 50s and 60s. They did not think of themselves as conservative. And yet, because of currents on their own side, they now found themselves being pushed toward some center along with these conservatives. So that's how I think I would explain that transition in the 60s. It, wasn't, it, was, it was a reaction, for sure, but it was a kind of a, a reorganization of the political constellation on the basis both of the social movements as well as the war. 
The difference, of course, between these conservatives and indeed some, a large section of the Republican Party was that these conservatives opposed the Civil Rights Act. And the Republican Party as a whole, actually, a, a higher percentage of Republicans voted for the Civil Rights Act, which, which, which really does go back a long way in Republican history, obviously, all the way back to Abraham Lincoln and opposition to the South's control of the Democratic Party. So these new conservatives are actually much more racially reactionary than the conservatives and Republicans whom they wanted to replace. The National Review was very clear in opposing the Civil Rights Act. What credence do you give the idea that this, this hostility to civil rights for African Americans, that I think in Buckley's words that they just weren't capable of self-government, or words to that effect, I'm trying to remember exact phrase, that that was the key thing that appealed to a lot of white ethnics who have previously been Democrats, part of that coalition, the way that neoconservatives have been part of that tradition, and suddenly began to see the Democratic Party actually increasingly as a party for racial sort of leftism, if you want to say, if you want, you want to put it that way. Yeah, I mean, I think the story is a little bit more complicated. Eisenhower was making inroads in the South while he was supporting civil rights. Um, Buckley and National Review opposed the civil rights bills of the 1950s, in addition to the 1964 bill, on a few grounds. One is the, the you know, frankly, bigoted grounds that you were just saying in his infamous editorial 1957, kind of cultural arguments against civil rights, which I think did stem from a, a Southern conservative tradition that, that has long been present in American life and that also kind of had been part of opposition to the New Deal and, and then kind of found its way into the post-war conservative movement as well. And then there were sort of constitutional arguments against the 1964 Civil Rights Act, voiced by Barry Goldwater. And who, Robert Bork, of course, famously. Yeah, right. And, and so Goldwater, while in his personal life was very pro-integration, kind of reached this very confusing position when he ran for president in 1964, where he said, well, there's no, you know, there's no constitutional authorization for, for two parts of the Civil Rights Act, basically the public accommodations titles. And so I can't support it. But however, he was running, it's funny, to your point about how the GOP in large part did support it, the Republican Party platform of 1964 called on its nominee to implement the Civil Rights Act. So he was the nominee. And this led to the, was partially responsible for the kind of the electoral disaster where really his only support came from, from the Deep South, right? So the, the racial element of this, while, while, while real, didn't actually work out very well for the Republican Party, in my view. <laughs> I don't, the, the fact that Goldwater was against the Civil Rights Act did not help him, obviously, plainly, right? And it's interesting that in 1968, when Nixon runs, right, Nixon, who's, of course, not a movement conservative, but he also understands the, the politics surrounding all this. He, he goes to Martin Luther King Jr.'s funeral, and it, it eventually becomes public knowledge that he did. And so he, he didn't want to be seen as an enemy of equal treatment under the law. In fact, he expands affirmative action while he's president. So I, I, think, it's, I think it's part of the story. 
And I'm, I won't deny that, and I, I talk about that in the book, I acknowledge it. But I don't think it's quite the whole story, especially because when we talk about the, the disruptions of the latter half of the 1960s and the rise in violent crime that begins in the 1960s and just continues to accelerate for the next two decades, it, it's not, it, in the minds of most voters, to be concerned about crime is not racist. They just worried about crime. To, to, to think about law and order in the cities, which in those late 1960s are riots every single summer, they're not coming at it from a, they don't think it's a racist thing to worry about the situation in the cities. So that's kind of how I, I when I talk to people and talk to students, I try to kind of add a little bit of complication to the narrative that's often presented about the rise of the right and the rise of Southern Republicanism. Let me present to you a little bit of what Chris Caldwell has, has argued about this particular period, which is that, in fact, however justified in so many ways the Civil Rights Act was, Goldwater had a point and Bork had a point, that it, it represented a whole new idea of the power of the federal government to impose equality on the people, and that it didn't stop at the unique circumstance of African-Americans who had been uniquely disenfranchised, murdered, bludgeoned, tortured, treated unbelievably badly. It went to women, it went to gays, it went to every, and now increasingly it's anybody who wants special treatment or some kind of accommodation for an identity. It's sort of overwhelmed in, in Chris's view, the sort of core idea of limited government permanently. The other thing that happened in 65, which is interesting, is the Immigration Act, which again, when you read the debates about it in the Congress, it seems like a complete non-event in so many ways. <laughs> People are saying, well, first of all, they're saying it's as good to, in the fight against communism to show that we're appealing to the whole world and we will take people from anywhere. That was a, a key rhetorical point. The other rhetorical point, which was in direct logical conflict with it, was that this won't change the ethnic mix of America at all. Don't you worry. This is exactly what Senator Kennedy did. But put those two things together when you have a law that specifically intends, and I don't think there's any equivalent anywhere else, to, to create a multiracial society as this grand experiment, as well as then proposing a set of laws and a new view of the Constitution, which will ensure equality of treatment and then, of course, eventually equality of outcome for all these different groups, was essentially as big a deal as the New Deal in terms of transforming the nature of America. How did, I'm trying to remember how, what, what did the conservatives say about that act? Well, they were generally skeptical of it. In, Not the Republicans, in, but the conservatives, right? The conservative movement, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think of a scholar named William uh, Wilmore Kendall. He was William F. Buckley Jr.'s professor at Yale. He was very important in the early days of the National Review. And many of his arguments about constitutionalism and how conservatism needed to defend the Constitution came to play in debates over things such as the Immigration Act of 1965, where, you know, he, he took a very skeptical view toward it. But he also acknowledged that, you know, it is a it is a work of piece of legislation that is that's not just a, you know, a presidential diktat, for example. Right. And Kendall, too, he had a very interesting view of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 which was, again, it's an act of Congress. So if this is the way that Congress is 
reaching a, a, a conclusion about how we should treat race in America, then that should be respected. You, know, you respected, yes, exactly. Now, Kendall, but was, was always it actually what's this? Well, who was always it? What's this law yeah. of reflection of general public opinion? Because it seemed to me that the obvious, the debate in the Senate and the and, and the Congress was saying, we we had assumption we realized that most people in this country would not like this, so we have to right. reassure them that it's not going to change anything. Which which doesn't even though it was passed by the Congress, it seemed to come from a, a very top down position. It was there wasn't a groundswell of American public opinion to 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 end a country that had once always had its immigration from North European or European to Asia, Africa, South America, and the whole rest of the, the world. Yeah, there, I, I think the funny thing about that 65 bill was uh, how little attention was paid to yeah. it and how, how, how much it was neglected, actually, for a long time, because the real import of the bill did not become apparent for really decades. I mean, I mean, really not until the 1980s did people begin to look up and say, oh, the things are really changing. <laughs> you know? So it, it's almost when you look through the journalism of the period, the, the mid and late 1960s, as I, as I did in my research, it, it's, this is not really a controversial issue for kind of the reasons you mentioned, though it is a, a great illustration from a conservative standpoint of the law of unintended consequences, that mm -hmm. you would enact this law and you wouldn't really know what would happen. I mean, in the same way, the Civil Rights Act was not thought to authorize racial preferences. And among the reasons that Goldwater opposed it was he believed it would end up doing exactly that, creating a regime of, of racial preference and counting by race in this country. And, and now um, look where we are, in which you and, can't even uh, get a job, that every single you know, corporation has its racial yeah. quotas, its racial goals, that, that as in fact, there is huge hysteria even if they have a record of promoting people of different, if the results are not exactly commensurate with what people want, they are under assault, which is a huge assumption that is directly contrary to what seemed to me to be the very basic understandings of limited government and American freedom. So the right. public accommodations part of the 1964 bill becomes eventually the seed corn for what we're now dealing with this vast apparatus of, of equality, let's say equity enforcement you want to use their their word of, of, of essentially racial discrimination by government and institutions on a massive scale, but this time against white people. A lot of that has to do with the the taking on the taking on of power by judges and bureaucrats and the way that they interpret the law once it's passed. And so you then have this other long running conservative critique of the of the of the role of the judiciary, right? And the and increasingly the kind of the nature of bureaucracies or the administrative state or even on the fringes, the deep state, right? So uh, the, there's long running kind of conservative concerns and interests that are present in the discourse around these bills over the course of their history. So then we come to, obviously, the, the Reagan revolution. Reagan kind of supported open borders, really, didn't he, at some point? I mean, not explicitly so, but was extraordinarily relaxed about mass immigration and was not just a containment person, but an active rollback person, someone who also believed that America had the right to violate international law if it, if it, if it felt so, if it felt necessary to do so. And that was sort of established with Grenada at the very beginning. So that was the first disavowal of internationalism in a way, because it did not 
actually uphold international law in that particular instance. They came up with some pretexts, but they didn't care about that. And then, of course, the desire, the belief, the sudden belief that American conservatives should create massive debt to finance massive tax cuts. And that, when you think, when I think of the legacy of modern conservatism, I think of it as our massive debt, that it was conservatives' decision to embrace debt and borrowing in the 1980s that has essentially created a situation where we're now, the Republic, we're, 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 we're teetering on the edge of extraordinary fiscal danger. How would you, how would you, if you, if you just, if I describe Reagan as the president who facilitated mass immigration and massive perpetual debt. He doesn't come out looking so good, does he? I, I, I think Reagan's attitude toward immigration is very open. He celebrated the immigrant experience. He talked about his Irish heritage. He launches his campaign in 1980, talking about a union in North America, what would eventually become NAFTA. That's his vision. Immigration on the border, uh, the southwestern border, doesn't become a, a major major issue until after Reagan, again, partly because of the unintended consequences of the 1986 amnesty, which promised in enforcement of immigration law, as well as the amnesty for people who were already here and really only the amnesty arrived. But that was not something that he paid much attention to. I, I would say that if just using your, your phrase, the mass immigration, that really happens later in our story under George W. Bush. But on the, on the debt, you know, it's interesting. So Reagan was initially very skeptical of this idea of supply side economics. Reagan had been a kind of a traditional, you know, balance the budget Republican for most of his life. It's in the run up to the 1980 campaign that he becomes convinced by Congressman Jack Kemp that the solution to the problem of stagflation, a combination of economic recession slash unemployment and high inflation, is one monetary policy that aims at price stability and two, dramatic cuts in the marginal tax rate. Reagan- Without um, any cuts in spending. In fact, with well, increasing in spending. Well, I mean, just to be fair, Andrew, I mean, in the, if it left to the supply siders, they would have cut spending too. Right, but this is why Reagan is, happen. Reagan is unique, unique about, I mean, if you look at Thatcher, they did cut spending. Reagan, right. well, Reagan, Reagan simply propelled us towards accelerating, intensifying debt. And until the Republican economy has become the profit of debt. I mean, believes in debt. I mean, you have a president that said debt is debt is king. I love debt. As he yes, as he so. threw even more tax cuts in an exploding economy just for the sake of it. Yes, I mean, and also, to, I mean, Thatcher is easier for her to cut the debt because in a parliamentary system, her party could do it. Whereas in the American system, Reagan had to deal with the Democratic House in particular. So that that was one roadblock. I'm not trying to exonerate him, just trying again to But it is hard uh, to think of anything less conservative than you can cut taxes and increase spending and there'll be no problem. I, I just find that if that is conservatism, then conservatism no longer exists. So I will say something here too. A lot of my book is about the relationship between conservatism and populism. I believe that supply side economics is fundamentally a populist economic program. In fact, its main theorist, a Wall Street Journal writer named Jude Wininsky, God, yes. explicitly said so, right? Yeah. He, he explicitly thought that supply side was a populist idea. You give the people, you give money to the people. I mean, remember too, this is during the era of bracket creep. So those high tax rates were affecting people lower on the income scale than they certainly do today, right? So, and one trait of, of populism 
is actually its kind of positively charged attitude toward debt, right? As, as from your quotes from a subsequent American president illustrate. So I, I think I would make that distinction. And this was the populist aspect of Reagan as well. Reagan was unique, as I have been saying, in kind of synthesizing conservatism with populism. And I would should say too that the, the verdict of the voters, at least of the electorate, was pretty high on, on, on supply side, as evidenced in, in, in the subsequent presidential elections of 84 and 88. Yeah, and who, the, who doesn't want to have their cake and eat it? Yeah, well, so this I'm, is what's, <laughs> what's funny is how long America has been able to avoid the consequences of this high debt. And, and it may actually be now where we, we might have the reckoning in the years ahead. I, I have noticed that the interest on the debt is increasing lately you uh, think? as as a result of as a result of new fed policies yeah. which was not not an issue during the reagan era the, that that because because it existed in an era an environment of price stability and low inflation right the the, the key aspect seen of reagan conservatism was a complete lack of interest in the future in this in the sense that lack of responsibility for the future and what i uh, find I think, sort of typical of Republicans, starting with Reagan, is this absolute abdication of responsibility for actions that they take. The most extraordinary example of which, of course, is the Iraq War, which is which in retrospect is the most absurd, grandiose overreach with absolutely no thinking through of the possible consequences or a completely rosy-eyed scenario around that. I think of the recklessness of that. And so I come to associate the Republican Party with recklessness, which is an extreme, is the extreme opposite of conservatism. At some point, the Republican Party has to accept it's not a conservative party. It is a reckless, radical party. And it's, the recklessness starts with Reagan until it becomes this cascading, let's, just, let's, let, let's loosen regulations in finance because who we'll get rich quickly, but then we have the 2008 collapse. We, we, can, we can transform another country, even though we, no one's ever done that before, and we can't do it now, but we'll do it anyway. And we won't admit that we're doing it, and we won't even admit that we failed until you get Trump, which is pure recklessness. Just no concern for the future, whatever, destroy any institution. And, you know, marked by, of course, Sarah Palin, who's, who's, who, who was a figure picked by John McCain, who brought this insane virus directly into the Republican Party. So how would you respond to that blistering critique of, of Republican recklessness of the last 30 years? Why I certainly can't find it extremely hard to support a party that is putting the very basics of ordinary economics and foreign policy prudence and every institution that it desires to destroy as its main focus. Well, I mean, I, I think it's a... a great polemic and one that where am I wrong a lot I think I think you're missing some some of the history mm -hmm. Andrew I mean you were there and <laughs> I've read you for 20 years so I, I know that you, you know you haven't always been at the position where you are right now no, um, I've learned my own I, lessons on the way yeah and, and and I think that's important I mean I think that evolution is important so for example I don't actually think Ronald Reagan would have invaded Iraq he he only deployed military force that is US troops twice one was to Grenada, as you said, and the, the first was to Beirut, and he regretted the Beirut within days, I think. Right? Was, yeah, after the yeah. after the terrorist bombing there, Reagan's foreign policy was one done through proxy, 
the Reagan doctrine of aid to the anti-communist rebels on the communist periphery. And it was the foreign policy of uh, retaliatory strikes. So, you know, if there was a terrorist bombing, he would strike Libya. If the Iranians were pestering oil shipments in the Persian Gulf, he would engage in the tanker wars of the late 1980s, right? So Reagan's foreign policy was not George W. Bush's. I think that's the first main distinction I would just draw. Now, George W. Bush could have his foreign policy in some ways because of the triumphalism that surrounded the success of Reagan's foreign policy. So I think we have to separate out the pre-1991 moment from what's happened after. And so, you know, with the end of the Soviet Union in December of 1991, you get this moment that I think George Will was the first to call a holiday from history, a sense of America as the unipower, the global hegemon that was responsible for the world's security. And when that position was dramatically and viscerally attacked on September 11, 2001, George W. Bush, who had actually campaigned kind of as his father's son in foreign policy, resisting nation building, talking about having a humble foreign policy. He then, he came to the view that the more Wilsonian aspect needed to come to the fore and and that America should be on the march, not only to stop these threats or stop emerging threats or potential threats, but also argue for, for global democracy. Now, the other piece that I want to insert is that Bush's the, the, the problems of the conduct of Bush's administration, okay? So the problems with the conduct of the war that became terribly apparent in his second term, the problems with the failure of his social security uh, privatization plan in 2005, and then the grassroots populist backlash to his immigration reforms in 2006 and 2007 created the conditions in which a Sarah Palin could emerge because what you had there in the in the last four years of George W. Bush was essentially the breakup of the conservative governing class that had formed under Reagan and Bush's father and, and persisted during the Newt Gingrich years in the Congress. Once that breaks up, populism fills in the vacuum. And that gives us Palin, that gives us the Tea Party, and that eventually gives us Donald Trump. Yes. The other, the other thing that Bush did, of course, was... Uh, a time of budget balance, which we finally got back to at the end of the 20th century, was to wreck the budget again by slashing taxes without any any plan to accommodate them. So there was that populism too. Let's just bankrupt the country to give us all a good time for a few years. And because it works politically, they've given up even thinking about it in economic terms. They were purely political about this. There was, of course, some social conservative grandstanding in that in that administration as well. Think of the Federal Marriage Act. But yes, this was cruising for bruising, wasn't it? I mean, this was, this was really pushing it, the transformation of conservatism into a radical Wilsonian debt-mounting mass immigration party, you, 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 mass illegal immigration party. No, no, not even a pretense at, 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 at policing the border. That, I can absolutely see where that that would lead to the emergence. I don't think it's fair to say the emergence of Palin. She didn't emerge. She was picked by John McCain and Bill Crystal because, well, their fathomless cynicism and also their recklessness, both deeply reckless people. McCain literally made this decision by saying, oh, fuck it, let's do it anyway. Let's throw, let's throw a massive risk. If I die, we, we have someone who doesn't even read the papers and who lies every time she opens her mouth. 
<laughs> That'll do. It's fine. We're in control. Isn't that kind of hubris that was asking to be admonished? Well, yeah, when I say emergence, I mean the kind of the, the constituency that was ready to greet her. Yeah. Okay. And that, that, that responded to her. Which was part um, of McCain's calculation in picking her. And also kind of, I think, a rec, you, know, you know, a recognition that in a way that he needed that. He needed that constituency because, because he did represent this older go governing class. Not just that, but he wanted to run with Lieberman, Joe Lieberman, you know, a, a liberal Democrat who never saw a country didn't want to liberate. That, if you look at the, if you look at the factions within the Republican Party, and you do have, you know, different factions, that was quite an extraordinary position to, to stretch it so far that you'll put a liberal Democrat on the ticket because of your messianic. And this is, this, you know, because this is after the Iraq war. So again, you can see why that was destabilizing to the party as a whole. And that was what led to the Tea Party and so on. Yeah, right. And I mean, we haven't mentioned the financial crisis. Well, of course. Which, which, then, which was also a function of Republican recklessness. I mean, I include you have to include Clinton in there, too. Well, sure. He's the one who signed the repeal yeah, of Glass-Steagall, right? supported so. by conservatives to, to deregulate the financial industry as if conservatives of people want to increase risk as opposed to minimize it. For me, those kind of acts symbolize a Republican Party that doesn't deserve the word conservative because it's just not even close to its meaning. A conservative doesn't care about debt, that doesn't care about enforcing borders, that wants to invade countries because it can, essentially, that believes it has an obligation to police the entire world. I, I can't see anything even faintly conservative about it. I think there are elements throughout that had a view of constitutional conservatism, the idea that there needed to be some element in the body politic that would defend the Constitution and its original understanding. And so we can talk about, for example, the rise of the conservative legal movement. We're in the 40th anniversary of the Federalist Society, created by Bork, created by Antonin Scalia, and law students through it. U Chicago and Yale to further this view of the Constitution, which I would say is conservative in the sense that it's trying to conserve this original understanding. So that's present throughout the, the Reagan years. Of course, Bush kind of tries to interrupt that too when he, when he nominates Harriet Myers, his personal attorney, to the Supreme Court. And there you have an example of the conservative movement pushing back against a Republican president successfully and forcing him to withdraw the nomination and to nominate Alito instead, with, of course, historical consequences in the long run. So um, you have a but you have a party. And I accept that. And I, I, I think that the conservative legal tradition is a completely defensible and conservative movement in as much as attempting to rein in the judicial branch from its attempt to replace the legislative branch and the executive branch. So I understand that. But what I don't understand is how that party, in fact, the very people that make that argument, like people at the Claremont Institute, then actually support the only president in American history that attempted to destroy the Constitution on God knows how many, and he's now pledging again to do it and has overwhelming majority. So something in the Republican Party has certainly a respect for the Constitution simply cannot conceivably be squared with the arguments in defense of Trump's behavior in office and particularly his attempt to prevent a peaceful transfer of power. How can a party that's had 
40 years of defending the Constitution, saying have the Constitution in their little pocketbooks, talk about the Constitution, then have absolutely zero concern for it when a truly tyrannical, demagogic populist emerges. You sound, you sound like Liz Cheney at the, at the regular well, I, last I, week. I think, she's, I think she's dead on. I think, I think she's exactly maybe, right. Yeah, maybe not on foreign and economic policy. No, but no, no. This no one, she's this. right. Yeah. I, I, I can't tell you. I mean, I don't have the answer to your question because uh, I agree with you on that. So, Matthew, that in fact, there was a conservative veneer to what is essentially a radical reactionary populism that, that, well, that you guys were able to ride for a little while until it ate you too. And there was no real constituency for the kind of conservatism that was peaking in the 1990s. Yeah, I mean, I I, I don't go that far. I view it more, yeah, I know. I, I mean, I view it more as a coalition and an argument within conservatism and within the right than kind of, you know, an obfuscation or kind of, you know, we'll, we'll put on a patina of respectability to it. Oh, I don't think it was some rational. plot. No, I don't. Th I don't think there was. I just think that so, there was only so long that this essentially liberal slash lefty elite of the Rove Bush people could have sustained it when the actual voters really disagreed with them very profoundly on a whole bunch of issues. That's right. But no, I mean, if you think about it, though, I mean, we were talking about how if you read the conservative literature in 1965 when the first immigration bill was was passed, it was very skeptical. I mean, there are many ways in which the Bush years were seen by movement conservatives as deviations from conservatism, right? And so this, what the effect though, in creating the space between the Bush administration from 2001 to 2009 and the Republican voter base and all of the deleterious things that flowed out of those eight years from the Iraq experience to the outrage over attempting to legalize the illegal immigrant population without doing anything to, to secure the border or reform immigration to the financial crisis is what basically delegitimized what you might call beltway conservatism in the eyes of the populist grassroots. Let's go, let's go to the immediate present, I mean, where we are right now. It seems that a large, you know, we know that a large proportion of the Republican base and voters do not believe that we have a legitimate election system. They now believe that it is rigged. Always. That is, that's a pretty horrifying moment in any liberal democracy. And they are currently planning to, in the words of Doug Mastriano, find a way to make sure that they never lose again. Certainly not going to take election results as the end of a conversation, but as the beginning of one. I mean, how does a political party recover from that? Because it essentially also means there's no point in voting. These other people are cheating. And they still cling to someone who is, I think, and again, I just I don't I just don't understand it, who is clearly insane. I mean, at, at, or at least so mentally unbalanced, he actually attempted to lead a violent mob to prevent the certification of election that he clearly lost. That is a unique event in modern Western history. I cannot think of any Western democracy in which that has happened since the Second World War. And that is the creation of the Republican Party. 
at certainly the creation of Donald Trump, who is the now owns the Republican the leader Party. of the Republican Party. He continues to have support among many Republicans. I, I thought it interesting. I just saw one Twitter response earlier today. Someone was posting a poll that showed Trump again with a very large lead for the Republican nomination in 2024. And, and one of the responses was someone saying, well, of course that's the case because Trump got us results. There's among Republicans a sense that Trump was the most successful chief executive the Republican Party had since Reagan. Well, in history. Since, maybe even before Reagan. No, he's I've greater Lincoln, than Lincoln and Washington I, yeah, put together. I've heard since, yeah, well, that's Trump saying it. <laughs> I've heard his supporters say since Lincoln. So I'm not with them there. Uh, but, you know, if you just go through the issues, Andrew, that you've been discussing, you know, take immigration, for example, on the border. He had worked his way to a solution where most illegal immigrants are having to wait their claims on the southern side of the border by the time that the pandemic hit. He had a very kind of almost schizophrenic foreign policy, but he never, you know, he didn't launch a war, which which was new for, for us in the, the post-Cold War era. And then... Prior to the pandemic, again, the economy was very hot. Again, and because of massive tax cuts that were not paid for. You know, tax cuts helped. He was coming up at the top of the cycle. That helped. You know, you could say his, his kind of business animal spirits, kind of the Warren Harding, Calvin Coolidge idea that the business of America is business. That might have been a pro, pro-growth, pro-market. So Republicans still view his presidency as, success, as a success and the, dimin the diminution of January 6th began happening very quickly after it. Very quickly, you started hearing, well, no one got so upset about the riots during the summer of 2020 as they're upset about this. And that has continued. I, I still think that there, that an inertia is beginning to slowly sap away tr some of Trump's standing in the Republican Party. I do think that there are, among Republicans, you hear it, you know, well, Trump had his time. It's we need to look to someone new, but that's not visible in the polls as of yet. On the election stuff, again, and I say this, I was horrified by January 6th as you were. There are many people today who don't believe George W. Bush was a legitimate president, president after Florida. There were people after 2016 who didn't believe Trump was a legitimate president because some combination of Russia or Facebook or whatever. So you, you have to look at the at the revealed preference. And this is where somebody like Mastriano is worrisome because you don't know what he would do. One, one thing I take away from the January 6th committee is government, American government, even at the state level, is so unwieldy and complex. And there are so many veto points that it is, it is hard to go through with the scheme that was attempted in 2020 and that might be attempted again. And I take some hope in that, that even it's very hard, even if you have a Republican government, not, not everyone is reliable. And, and this is what something Trump, thank God, was frustrated about, right? Up to his vice president. So I, I, do, I do take some hope in that, but I agree, people should, people should be worried. And I would say too, the electorate- I mean, again, I'm just trying to understand whether there is a, a, even an ounce of conservatism in this. This is, if you think, I would think that if you really push deep, the one thing you really have to believe in is the Constitution and, and defense of it. These people don't. 
well, they say they do, but they, I mean, they say they, they do. That's the thing. It's, it's what, you know, we have to burn the village in order to save it. Right. I mean, I, I think that they're the, among some populists, their worldview is so apocalyptic right. and conspiratorial that they're willing to do that. Yeah. And, you know, I, I reject that, but I, I'm, if we're trying to get into their psychologies, I think that's where they're, they're coming from. And I would say just too that these concerns about the democracy are not, you know, they're not really visible in the electorate at large, right? I mean, the president's, since we're talking contemporary politics now, the President Biden's approval rating continues to sink. I mean, he's now at Bush levels, at the second term Bush levels, which I had thought would be unique. And because he's the, a terrible president. <laughs> well, and so, every, almost every decision he's, he's made has been the wrong one. So his only hope then is that the electorate sees the return of Trump as a distinct possibility in 2024 and says that we that we just that is just something that can't that can't be allowed to happen. But if the Democrats go the way they're going, which is yeah. that Biden is essentially a, a sock puppet for the woke left, they could nominate someone who would make Trump definitely reelectable. I, I, and that's, that's, that's the dynamic that Trump has obviously contributed to. Because at some level, a liberal democracy requires, for it to function at all, a sense that we are all part of the same project in the end, even though we fight each other to death, you lose sometime and, oh, well, I'm going to win next time. That is the crucial element. Trump has no conception of that. It is impossible for him to lose anything ever. And so, and his psyche has penetrated the psyche of large numbers of Americans. I think, I, I think it is more likely than not that he will be the next president. And, and I do think that conservative, American conservatives bear a great deal of responsibility for that because I don't, I, I, I have no idea the damage that would happen after that. I mean, this is kind of terminal damage to the Republic, I think. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, so if he conservatism does, if he... will end with the destruction of the American Constitution and way of life. And that that strikes me as one of the greatest historical ironies imaginable. Yeah, they would make for some epilogue to the it second will. edition look, of my book. I hope you don't will. have to. I mean, I don't, I'm not sure we're quite there yet. I mean, and of course, it won't just be, look, Trump Trump won in 2016 because he won independent voters, right? He lost in 2020 because he lost independent voters by a huge margin. What's the one group of the electorate that Trump declined relative to his 2016 baseline? It was white men. <laughs> You'd think the most conservative element of our, of our electorate turned against him in 2020, cost him a second term. Yeah, things. Yeah, you'd have to. Things would have to get really bad for him to be able to turn those things around. And he won't. Know, he I, won't have to. The Democrats will do it for him. Well, then it's not just conservatives who would be responsible, would it? No. Right. I mean, no. We're all. We're all part of this. You know. I mean, <laughs> presumably they would bear the bulk of the responsibility if yeah. it's their party's nominee. I'm sorry. Well, but, I mean, I think I think one thing that comes out of the book, Andrew, is that it's not necessarily a concern. The Republican Party. Is not, it's just a shell. Right. These these parties are just institutions. They're just shells. They're, yeah. they, they're reflections of the people in them. And right now, the Republican Party is a populist party. It is, it is, a, it is a religious, nationalist, populist party. Right? So there are still elements of Reaganism in it. There are still elements of constitutional conservatism in it. But, but it, is, it is something different. 
So it's going to be those voters and those elites who bring Trump a second non-consecutive term if that actually does happen. And we'll have we'll have people who identified with the conservative movement played some part in it for sure. But I, I think there's plenty of blame to go around. I, I, I do not disagree with you. Obviously, I, I think the way the Democrats responded and are continuing to respond has been remarkably uh, counterproductive, put it that way. But I also understand how when you invert the practices of liberal democracy, you will evoke in your opponents a similar rejection on the grounds that, well, if they're doing it, why don't we do it? But anyway, I, I loved Reagan. I was an immigrant. In, I came in when he was in his midterm. It was the America that I came to love. Still America I love. But increasingly, I found the inability of the Republican Party increasingly to accept the legitimacy of its opponents allow them their time in power without having these unbelievably hysterical hissy fits about it. When I look at the record of Obama, for example, I see him trying to get out of wars. I see him trying to get back to fiscal sanity and getting a little bit closer than he had been before, even though inheriting that massive. I see someone who was handed the worst card ever. I see someone who as a black man is the most, couldn't, couldn't be a more ideal representative in his family life, in his responsibility. And they hated him from the minute he, he became president. I, they didn't even seem to feel a twinge of pride that this had happened in an America that once had slavery. So that's the other thing. I just, I, I just, it was the thing that most threatened my view of America, the way that so many people responded to what I regarded as, and maybe I was wrong, but I don't think so, a pretty moderate temperamentally waspy middle of the road would have been a could have been a republican 30 years ago kind of guy well it's obviously not the way the conservative movement saw it right you know obama i think there was at least in some quarters of the conservative movement pride in the fact that we had had our first black president and that he was an admirable person in in many ways in his family life and his in his just his the way he conducted himself, his writing, his writing, his oratory, right, which was impeccable. But he, I, I think, under the Obama years, I guess the one thing I would say is there was a sense that Obama was interested in changing course or dealing with the right, with this populist right, in the manner in which Clinton had done during Clinton's presidency. And so I think for many. For many on the right, and this is not, you know, I'm not excluding the birther conspiracy stuff that was out there and that Trump, you know, used. I do think for, 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 for many on the right, though, it was when Obama didn't change course on his health care plan after Scott Brown's election in Massachusetts to Ted Kennedy's seat to replace Ted Kennedy, the lion, the liberal lion. They elect Scott Brown, who's running explicitly against Obama's health plan. And there was a moment there that I thought conventional Washington, the Beltway, where I live and work, the right conservative movement, okay, respond to this signal that the electorate is showing you, right? Change your plan. Obama didn't do it. And then the House goes in 2010. You know, it's a Tea Party House. It's a populist house. You get to, right to the brink in 2011 with the debt crisis. Then there was another moment in 2014 after re-election where Obama had been on the record 
many, many times saying he lacked the presidential authority to expand his DACA program. And then after the 2014 election, in which the Republicans again had won, this time both the House and the Senate, he does it anyway. I think this builds on the right, the sense that Obama is not interested in, in, in working, working with the opposition. And if that's the case, then, well, we need to go elsewhere. We need to go outside the system, right? We need to go to a disruptor and, and, and we need to go to Donald Trump. So that push and pull that you're describing, I think it also, it was also a reaction to some of Obama's style in, in dealing with his opposition during his eight years, this idea that, well, yeah, the electorate said one thing, but that's not going to stop me. Admirable in some ways, if you share his positions, if you don't share his position, maddening. I understand that. And I have been a critic of that, his decision to decide that he was actually a king, even though he'd said he wasn't. And I see it as a complete capitulation to his own party, but also a frustration that they weren't really ready to compromise with him on immigration and, 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 and where they were was so far beyond what he could do. And I know from his perspective that he would have liked to. Maybe maybe you're right that style and temperament, that Clinton had much more of a, a Baba kind of lived among many of the people he needed to and knew many of the people he needed to reach out to. Obama didn't in that same visceral way. Also, Bill Clinton was a, a political genius in ways that I think we have, we, we, we currently have not appreciated that, that, that he, he really was able to rescue the Democratic Party, put it in a relatively strong position. But again, the other thing that comes across to me is that, and you're, you're absolutely right to say it's not the Republicans' fault, but the Democrats have this unbelievable capacity to fuck everything up. And certainly electorally, they pick people no one would ever like. They occasionally luck out with a really talented politician, but a party that actually nominated Hillary Clinton in, in 2016 is a party dedicated to self-destruction and I, I and I'm concerned that that's what they're going that's where they're going to now and if you spend any moments on Twitter or anything and you hear the left elite talking to itself it's truly chilling they're living in another universe yeah I, I mean the only thing I'd say there is you know Trump was the least popular candidate in the history of the Gallup poll in 2016 running against the second <laughs> most unpopular candidate in the history of the Gallup poll and I think that for those crucial voters in the three states, you know, the, some 40,000 some voters who decided that election, it was like, well, let's go with the change agent as opposed to the unpopular person who we've been dealing with for 30 years. In 2024, people know Trump, right? You can't say Trump is new anymore. People know Trump. We've been living in his era since 2015. And when push comes to shove, there are still a lot of people, I think, in America who just do not want to live through another four years of Donald Trump. Right. That's and that's that's what got Biden in. That's what Biden never understood. The only reason he's here in that White House is because people didn't want to have another four years of Trump. And I still think that will hold in 2024. The, the situation will have to get very, very bad for it not for it. to. Yeah. Not. My if I look. If I just think realistically, if my goal, my fundamental goal right now, and has been since 2015, is to try and stop this man from being president. So I'm currently looking at DeSantis as someone who might be a an actual constitutional 
saying, I think he's a bit of an extremist in some ways, but I also think he's a, a he's a good politician in others. I recommend to readers that Dexter Filkins wrote a really superb profile of him in The New Yorker like three weeks ago, which I thought was really fair-minded and impressive. We live and learn. Matthew, I just want to say that if, if, if anyone wants to understand the evolution of the Republican Party and wants to see the, the themes and debates that have gone on with it over the last hundred years and how they resurface and how they reconfigure in different ways, this book is really one for you. And it's also, I have to, I'm happy to say, really well written. You don't notice it's, you're reading it as you go by. It's got lots of interesting quotes, anecdotes, humans in it. It's not an abstract and tedious book. So I, I strongly recommend it. And I'm deeply grateful, Matthew, for you having this, this spirited and you know conversation with me. I, I thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. You bet, Matthew. And coming up, all sorts of amazing goodies. I keep surprising you. And I, I'm going to keep surprising you on this, but we do have some very, very cool guests coming up. And stay tuned at the Dishcast. Again, please, we're almost two years up. We don't charge you a thing for this. And we give it to you and I don't have to sell you a new mortgage or a lawnmower or any of the other things that these poor podcast hosts have to do. So keep it going by just subscribing. It's just five bucks a month. You won't notice it. And you'll get four podcasts, four columns and all your descents, all your window views, all the other parts of the dish that people have come to enjoy. So please do that. And I hope you had a good July 4th. I am going to see you all again next week. Until then, cheers. <laughs>